We ended the last lecture examining Hegel's account of desire in the master-slave dialectic. There, I argue that the master-slave dialectic moves towards a reconciliation of natural hierarchy. If left alone, the mutual antagonism of the master-slave dialectic engenders defective forms of recognition. That is, forms of recognition which foster dependency rather than autonomy. To transcend this predicament, we need to recognise our desires in collective forms of justice, institutions and norms which arbitrate the inevitable disputes that emerge in the human sphere. To transcend these forms of misrecognition, we need to appeal to a universal recognition, where individuals are self-conscious, striving particular beings, but equally acknowledge that all humans are universal in their particular desires to assert autonomy. Before we get to culture, politics, ethics and religion, there are still more steps to be carried out before we can understand ourselves as historical beings. Firstly, we need to understand how Hegel conceives of reason as a type of activity. In addition, to understand spiritual freedom, Geist, we need to comprehend what he has to say about the Absolute. To this end, I will look at what Hegel says in the distinction he draws between reason and understanding. Also, I am going to explain a number of other forms of misrecognition, that is, stoicism, scepticism, unhappy consciousness, and the beautiful soul. These really are all different types of dependency, to which Hegel will proceed to provide an alternative account of freedom. Reasoning, in the end, will be the prerequisite for spiritual freedom. The master-slave dialectic shows us that we are historically situated, that is, we are how we find ourselves in the world, constituted from the social relations we inhabit. The master-slave dialectic also has an epistemological inflection since it shows that individual knowledge of the world is partial, contextual and conditioned. Conditioned in the sense our philosophical activity, the act of coming to self-understanding is dependent on the times we live in and prevailing customs, beliefs and traditions or even relations of hierarchy, domination and emancipation. On the other hand, the telos of the phenomenology of spirit is the absolute, and the absolute is precisely that which is unconditioned. So, immediately we have a paradox. How do we reconcile spirit as absolute with the inevitably finite and contingent knowledge we accrue over the course of a life? The master-slave dialectic shows consciousness as forms of misrecognition, which, if you think about it, is also an epistemic claim, as in, I do not recognise that which is true, or where both master and slave misrecognise their mutual reciprocity. Particularity is another word for contingent and specific knowledge, but the master-slave dialectic, as we saw, is a form of defective recognition. Coming to self-understanding requires transcending particular viewpoints, which, as we have already seen, takes place through social forms of recognition and accounting. But again, we can see here something profoundly alienating. Philosophical self-understanding requires overcoming our own perspective, or, in other words, our own opinions and uncertainty. Another way of posing the epistemological dimension of the master-slave dialectic is accepting we understand the world in a perspectival way and conceive the world in radically different ways, or, 
in the language of the phenomenology of spirit, we exist as beings with competing versions of sincerity. The phenomenology of spirit is, across the text, an effort to articulate the sum total of all phenomena, even when positions are in contradiction with themselves, since truth requires the grasping of what we know as mediated through different forms of knowing, through different concepts. When Hegel uses the term absolute, what he's actually referring to is a horizon of intelligibility. It is absolute only insofar as we know that truth consists of competing perspectives. If we adhere to the usual sense of the absolute, as that which is unqualified or unconditioned, then we can really not know it because we're conditioned beings. That is, finite and uh, determined in particular contexts. How we come to know things, therefore, is not absolute, since, as Hegel has shown up to this point, we come to know things via particular perspectives. Equally, knowledge is not absolute unless it incorporates all the different particular historical situations which determine that knowledge. Again, this seems to lead to a paradox. The absolute cannot be affected by anything outside of it. It must be unmediated and undivided. But our knowledge is inherently divided and mediated. Concepts, thoughts, mental content are inherently mediating, since they generate distinctions and oppositions and are tied to concrete contexts and experiences or forms of life. So how on earth can we know anything? The way Hegel resolves this contradiction is interesting. To understand the absolute, we need to understand the famous distinction between reason, vernunft, and understanding, verstand. Understanding is a necessary but not sufficient part of coming to know the truth. Our understanding is defined by cognitive knowledge, comprising logic, the ability to draw distinctions, making claims, justifying them, judging relata. Reason is the activity of applying these conceptual tools to the world itself. Put more broadly, you could think of it as an inherent opposition within thinking between our intuitive drive towards unity, absolute, and towards distinction, difference, the relative, or plurality. Again, the one and the many. Of course, for Hegel, we must understand ourselves as both. Reason is an activity of synthesis. It strives towards the whole, unifying or drawing conceptual interconnections. Are put in an everyday sense, reason is crucial because it is that part of us which tries to see the, the big picture of how concepts, events, or things relate, as well as their purposes and functions. Understanding is analytic in that it tries to break things down into its constituent parts. I have often seen this distinction defined as different types of intelligence. That is, would reason usually cast as emotional intelligence and understanding as logical intelligence? Or in other terms, intuition versus rational justification? Or in an even more banal sense, where we hear some folks are mathematically minded and other folks are more creatively minded. All of these, I think, are helpful, although they do not quite get at what Hegel is driving at. Understanding defines the particular, the particular ways we apply our understanding, whether this is an activity of classification, distinction, or demarcation. Reason is this, but also the understanding of the purpose of those activities, that is, why they matter, and what they have to do with concrete life. 
As such reason is purposive, orient towards applying our conceptual distinctions in the actual world. Reason, for Hegel, is therefore a form of practical knowledge, which strives to consider all the different positions which understanding offers us. If we think of the phenomenology of the person, that is, what is it like to be a rational human being, then for Hegel, humans are constituted with a disposition towards unity and a disposition towards difference at once. Reason strives to understand unity. Understanding strives to break down unity into ever more fine-grained analysis and conceptual distinctions. While reason cannot but orient itself towards the whole, the absolute, as it discerns the contradictions, limitations and errors of factual understanding. Reason is hence dialectical, since it negotiates particular positions and contingent factual claims with their universal uh, purpose. Reason is that part of us which knows the truth. Reasoning shows that truth is the limitations of our capacity to know. Understanding, albeit valuable in an instrumental sense, as it gives us nuance, specificity, classification, at the same time, it is driven towards a fragmented picture of reality. Reason is the next step in the understanding of our spiritual development. Because what reason shows is precisely the limitations of our ability to know. This is a basic Socratic insight. Ignorance is constitutive of knowledge. One cannot at all know unless one knows where one does not know. Similarly, one cannot know if one does not know the limits of one's knowledge. Put in a Hegelian register, reason it comes to know that which is absolute is the recognition of the limitations of our capacity to know. The absolute reveals the inherent contingency of knowledge, which is equivalent to recognising the provisionality and unpredictability of what we know, as well as the status of that knowledge for our past, our present, and our future. Thus we can say that absolute is not something divine or supersensible, nor is it that which is materially determined. There is no beyond, there is only that which occurs. The absolute is that which is there. Knowing the truth is coming to know how we know reality. We can call the absolute absolute in Hegel's very specific understanding of the word because we come to know how we know. And what is unconditional about the absolute, it is that it is a type of rational activity which grasps the limitations of all other concepts and forms, since certainty, perception, understanding. This conditioned unconditional is not the sophistical idea that all knowledge is relative, but rather something subtly different. And that is that the relative is the absolute. It's not as if Hegel is saying that relative perspectives over what is true are absolute. This would not make sense as different perspectives are finite determinations, self-contained and have no sense in relation to other perspectives. Rodri, he emphasises all relative perspectives are true, or put in a less abstract way, there are many if not innumerable different perspectives of the same reality. The relative is absolute in the sense that 
historical determination is the condition of possibility of coming to know any form of life or any form of knowledge. Additionally, there is not some basic substance underlying all of our different perspectives. Instead, the absolute is recognition of the limited nature of our perspective without appeal to a supersensible or transcendent entity. Returning briefly to the master-slave dialectic, we can see both the ethical and epistemological element which Hegel develops in his chapter on reason. The development of our self-understanding is impeded from becoming spirit when we only grasp ourselves as beings that are purely distinct, sovereign or separate from the totality of life in which we are embedded. Within the phenomenology of spirit, the discovery of history has some very important consequences. There is a sense that the historicality of the human is entwined with the question of freedom. Why freedom? Because the human is incomprehensible as a being that is present, given, or completed. This also implies a sense that we are not absolutely determined. Certainly, we are determined in a limited sense. For example, we are natural beings with a set of dispositions. For example, I cannot turn into a bat and fly away, for example. But equally, we are not reducible to our natural disposition because we are also beings who are open to alteration. And this illuminates why freedom is always constitutive of what we are. We may renege on our freedom or have our freedom impeded, but it is always a question for us. Conventionally, the history of philosophy poses the question of freedom within the remit of causality. If something is freely self-causing, then it is not determined. And if something is determinately caused, it is not free. Hegel is operating with a very different idea of freedom. Freedom is something that is inseparable from our historical development and the world of social inaction we inhabit and which forms us. For Hegel, freedom is something else entirely. It is wirklich, working, actual, coming into being, effective, has a sense of thereness. This means freedom is radically entwined with the social relations we attempt to create and which shape us as we and others create them. To be free for Hegel is to be embedded in institutional, material and social practices. Thus freedom is a question, a question of the dispositions and capacities we need to adopt in order to sustain and cultivate ourselves, our community and our species across the span of our life. As desiring and living beings, we continually exercise desire and seek self-satisfaction. This means we are fundamentally striving beings who continually strive to sustain lives across time. In addition, as our own self-satisfaction is impeded by others, and their pursuit of self-satisfaction, our freedom is thus interwoven within deep networks of relations, consensus as well as dissensus. It is not naturally given or assumed what counts as meaningful or purposive for us. Indeed, this is something at stake, or something to be achieved, something to be accomplished. The reason Hegel draws a distinction between historical freedom and freedom as naturally determined is precisely because we cannot reduce freedom to a subjective perspective. Freedom is not caprice. Here, we can see an echo of Kant's thought that freedom is the freedom to do one's duty. 
whilst not subservient to desires and pleasure. However, Hegel also deviates from Kant, as he considers freedom as necessarily socially mediated. What we need to understand here is that for Hegel, what we are is temporal and striving beings. But we should not conflate what we are as human beings with subjective tastes, inclinations and desires, or particular ego preferences, tastes, say. We can certainly do this, e.g. I like ice cream, you like jam, etc. We all have different tastes, but we should not take our particular tastes as the natural determination of all tastes, of all beings. Or even further, we should not take the liking of particular things as the form of all human subjects, or as the form of all human subjectivity. That would be a mistake, as it assumes that what is subjective that is my perspective, my sense certainty, as what is real, and even more perniciously, as what ought to count as real for everyone. This equates to a fundamental form of misrecognition. We take our autonomy as if it were true, rather than recognising that our freedom is entwined to our social formation within norms, community, institutions, the state, nation. Our freedom is inseparable from the common good. As long as we understand the common good as something incomplete, which needs to be worked out, and which ultimately matters. Freedom is basically the recognition that mattering matters. In The Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel presents three exemplars of defective forms of freedom. Stoicism, Scepticism, and the Unhappy Consciousness. What is interesting about these types of consciousness is that all exhibit a resistance to truth. Where truth, again, is our coming to know that we know as historically constituted beings. The importance of thinking of self-understanding in this way is that it enables us to recognise the stakes of freedom, our priorities, and what is required in order for us to pursue and maintain a flourishing existence. This recognition is not attained in Stoicism, Scepticism and the Unhappy Consciousness. What is wrong, though, with these poor and happy souls? Well, those who follow these forms of consciousness misrecognize what constitutes happiness. The Stoic is the thinker who wants to understand everything as intelligible in terms of the present. Here, all that matters necessarily precludes thinking of the future or the past. The skeptic, then, is the thinker who willfully and continually negates all true claims not for epistemological veracity, but because it is good, necessary, healthy, a prerequisite for a flourishing life. Hegel has more in mind here the ancient Greek form of scepticism as practiced by Pyrrho, where scepticism strove for freedom from disturbance, ataraxia. Both scepticism and stoicism overlap here as their aim is a negative form of freedom. It is freedom from the future and past in the case of the Stoic and freedom from disturbance in the case of the sceptic. Ultimately, both demand a form of happiness which is ahistorical, immune to the vicissitudes of living a life in time. Hegel's problem with these is that they both misrecognize what matters, and that is action. As ideals, they offer a misguided account of what stands for a meaningful life especially as they are 
detached from the very social world which constitutes us. Similarly, the unhappy consciousness is a religious form of life, which too exhibits a type of scepticism. This is the scepticism of the natural world. Happiness is only found in the positing of a transcendent and immaterial world, unmediated and unaffected by our real and material historical life. Because happiness is posited as residing in a supersensible beyond of history, such a form of consciousness is equivalent to self-alienation, since one can never attain an eternal godlike perspective, and thus one truly remains unhappy. Marx and Feuerbach would go on to see this type of faith as a form of self-alienation. We could also add here the beautiful soul, which Hegel speaks about later in the Phenomenology of Spirit. Here, the beautiful soul projects its own particularity on the world as if the world was itself. This is a fetishization of the discourse of the heart, emotionality, with conscience understanding itself as pure, split and unsullied by a deformed and malignant external world. Again, the point is that such forms of consciousness are running away from historical reality than f- rather than fully engaging it. The beautiful soul is a myopic form of recognition where a pious self withdraws from the world to avoid any conflict which would expose the purity of their own heart to interrogation. The beautiful soul is paradigmatic of all these forms of consciousness because it strives to annul all striving. The search for purity misses something fundamental about human existence. These defective forms of consciousness mistake passivity for flourishing. Implicit to all those forms of recognition is a retreat into the private. But in reality, this retreat is actually the truest form of privation, since it fails to discern what is necessary for our freedom, which is acting in the concrete world. In contrast, Hegel has a very practical understanding of happiness. Satisfaction is to be considered as carrying out activities which matter to us. We do this by cultivated dispositions, habits and powers which equip us to carry out successful actions, which strive towards a satisfied life. There is no guarantee that we will reach such ends, but our social institutions, the common good, must be oriented, must be equipped to enable us to give us the best possible chance of succeeding. As we saw with the master-slave dialectic, we strive to be at one with ourselves while continually being at odds with ourselves. As self-conscious agents, we inhabit a social space in which we are automatically exposed to contestation and challenge, which in turn compels us to offer responses and justifications. Freedom, then, is inhabiting a space of reasons and justifications. This would be the inauguration of Geist, or our spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is possible when we exist particularly and universally, or individually and collectively, if you like. By understanding what it is to be a self-interpreting agent in a world mediated by others, norms, institutions and the public sphere, our spiritual freedom follows from the activity of our reason where we grasp the conditions of our historical life. To be spiritually free, at least according to Hegel, is free as inseparable from the society we inhabit. We can now begin to see what freedom is for the human being. Geist, 
is not a thing or an object, but an activity. To understand freedom as activity might seem obvious, but if you think of what freedom looks like, we usually tend to offer negative definitions. If I ask you, what is freedom, you might quite understandably say, well, it's not slavery. Hegel aims to give a positive explanation of freedom. Geist, coming to understand that freedom, self-overcoming and emancipation are fundamental human needs. Needs which, if not honoured by society and which do not form parts of individual self-understanding, can end up in dysfunctional forms of consciousness. Freedom is not a question of determinism or a voluntary moment of self-legislation, but rather premised on collective sets of priorities. This can be thought of either in an individual or communal sense. My priorities, of course, may contradict the priorities of my nation, my friend, my community. Hegel makes much of Antigone in the phenomenology of spirit for this reason. But the form of life attendant to freedom requires a collective activity over time to make concrete, to make real, the stakes of collective self-legislation. Freedom is the human coming to recognise that their freedom is precarious and dependent. In other words, for Hegel, we cannot come to be who we are without ties of mutual dependence on others. Self-consciousness in this vein is Geist, where consciousness incrementally develops more insight into reality and its condition, and thus increasingly begins to experience the world as a place in which it can recognise itself. This type of discernment is pivotal to Hegel's notion of freedom. Here we can see how freedom is a form of transcendence, albeit an imminent transcendence, where our emancipation is premised on experiencing external reality as at a remover alien to us, but also something that can be developed in tandem with our own projects and desires to achieve. Such an emancipation again is verklik, i.e. it is something that needs to be done, something that needs to work. It does not, however, preclude the possibility that things go wrong, that there might arise institutional failures, that factions or dissidents emerge to undermine our society. Lots of things can go wrong, and they do, often. But Hegel accepts this and is not a utopian thinker, at least not in the quixotic sense. Geist or spiritual freedom is always realised in the drive towards a consensus of person, world and citizenship. Only here can we grasp concrete freedom. Again, freedom is not caprice. To be free is not simply to indulge your whims. This would be the form of abstract freedom, which Hegel calls a deficient form of freedom, as it is a form of freedom withdrawn from the relations which constitute our mutual self-consciousness. Nor is he suggesting, as often attributed to him, that freedom is state authoritarianism where the state imposes draconian laws on individuals. This would equally lead to a society where mutual recognition is not possible. Geist, by way of conclusion, is equivalent with a collective sense of how we produce ourselves as species. Not necessarily as simple natural beings, but as beings for which the question of our humanity is always at stake. If we are free, then we must be engaging with, assessing, delivering on contested sets of priorities. The status of humanity in general, its well-being and its philosophical status, is always a necessary concern. 
any deviation from striving for a view of ourselves as self-interpreting animals in a community, for Hegel, might lead to tyranny or mob rule, which themselves clearly preclude the possibility of freedom. The fullest expression of freedom is realised progressively across a span of time in a world we share with other humans. Our reasons certainly do require our instrumental understanding, but we need to turn to reason to see the purpose of life as activity. For Hegel, contradictions like mastery and servitude, the unconditioned and the conditioned, the universal and the particular, are not necessarily deleterious to our understanding. In some sense, these contradictions exhibit a type of progress, since they exhibit contestable contradictions or to show how reason is an ongoing philosophical activity, rather than reducible to natural or supernatural explanation. In addition, understanding life as inherently contested implies life is only intelligible as dynamic. This is to say that life is not something present, but always processual. Reasoning, then, is a type of discernment or recognition that the truth of myself is not simply given, predetermined, but rather exists as the activity which concerns itself with ever-shifting sets of interpersonal, ethical, political coordinates. We should be careful. Hegel is not saying something like there are no facts or there is no objective world. What he is saying is facts and objectivity are only meaningful from a perspective of life. A fact or an objective thing can only be comprehended insofar as they have purpose or worth. That which is true is true insofar as it implies lived factuality. Our set of common commitments through which we might concretely self-legislate ourselves. This is why historicality is crucial for Hegel. The historicality of the absolute reveals that nothing can give meaning or purpose to the world without it being an embedded part of it. Hence the world is understood temporally, or as the historical constitution of its own meaning. The absolute emerges from itself. As the trajectory of the phenomenology of spirit shows, this processual sense of the human being becomes more manifest as we move through the realms of experience, individuality, social life and ethical relations, as well as humanity in general. Here, spiritual freedom is only intelligible when everything matters.